Hey there, fashionable podcast listener. To celebrate our fifth year of recording from RailsConf, we've printed a small batch of t-shirts for the bike shed, featuring new custom artwork and available in both straight and fitted cuts. Pre-orders for these shirts are open from now until Thursday, April 20th, and can be picked up directly at RailsConf. We won't be bringing any extras with us, but we promise these will be available again in the future. So please only order if you're attending the conference yourself. Otherwise, how will we get them to you? To check them out, head over to tbot.io slash bike shop. That's T-B-O-T dot I-O slash bike shop and get yours today. Thanks for listening. And we can't wait to see you at the conference. I forgot to fill you in on the thrilling conclusion of uh, my family emergency last week. Okay. Monopoly was purchased. I have played Monopoly several times. Since. I'm so sorry. You know, it's not that bad. It's good. So, so you're living in a hotel now, I assume. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't like doing it, but like my son who is going to be, he's coming up on seven. Like he does math and he counts money and he's learning about how ruthless capitalism is, uh, which is actually the point of the game. So, you know it's going okay i and if you play if you play by the actual rules it's a little bit faster than the rules most people end up playing by so i just make sure we play by the actual rules so so you're just you're basically you're turning your son into a communist i mean either that or i mean his let me let me put it this way i destroyed him the first time we played (laughs) (laughs) i showed no mercy as you should i played the strategy where you uh there's like a, a strategy you can play basically I'll find the link and I'll put it in the show notes where like somebody posted about how like they really hated playing Monopoly and people kept suggesting it. So he came up with a way to like basically guarantee that you're going to win and that nobody's going to have a good time. <laughs> so that nobody will ask to play Monopoly. The strategy is basically to get like get the purple, the low, the lowest end Monopoly you can as quickly as you can and then build four houses on both of those really quickly. Never upgrade them to hotels. And then as as you start bankrupting other people and collecting other monopolies, build four houses on them. And you can actually make a housing shortage so that nobody else can build houses. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, the game's over. I didn't over. know that there was a limited number of houses. Yeah, there's a limited number of houses. And if you read the directions, it actually says, like, when the houses huh. are out, you can't build. Okay. Well. Yeah. Monopoly. <laughs> I do. I You know, I haven't. I mean, I'm sure I played Monopoly incorrectly a few times as a kid. I don't really specifically remember ever playing it, but I feel like I must have. And I, I do just know that apparently nobody plays by the actual correct rules. Yeah. Why don't you come over to my house sometime? We can play Monopoly with the, with my family. It'll be a great time. All right. Or better yet, bring it to <laughs> Phoenix. Well, no, I'm not bringing the family to Phoenix. He would be very upset if I took Monopoly. Ah, uh, good point. going on they landed the rocket i saw that just like the day before our podcast where you said they couldn't possibly land the rock or maybe i guess it was i said that it would be a big deal if they landed it aside from the reuse aspect of it it was a heavier gto payload than they've ever landed before it was the hottest re-entry they've done right uh some people are speculating it also has to do with they tried a different angle of attack on re-entry which might make sense, but basically you can visibly see the reentry heating on one of the grid fins. It looks like the thing catches on fire during the video and then the pictures that they posted uh, yesterday, I think, because the the video cut out when uh, the landing happened because normally they do what's called a boost back burn. So they, they lower some of their horizontal velocity before reentering the lower atmosphere so that there's less reentry heating going on there's less fuel required for the landing itself because they're going slower but one side effect of that is that the place that they land is closer to where they took off from and usually they still have line of sight to the coast from where the the barge ends up being uh which means a much more stable video connection for this landing they had to land so far out in the ocean that the only connection that the barge had was to a satellite and so that antenna has to be pointed correctly and then when it's not sure if it's pointed correctly it kills the video feed and the engine causes a lot of vibration so it almost universally anyway so we didn't have the live video like we normally do so they posted pictures yesterday and the bottom of the rocket was black the bottom of the rocket's always black but the top half of the rocket was also very black Hmm. or at least blacker than usual so you can just visually see the additional reentry ports it had 
I do just love though. There's this there's this band of white in the middle of it, and that's just caused because that's that's where the liquid oxygen tank is, and the liquid oxygen is is the the coldest material in that rocket, and it it's literally the tank itself ends up being so cold it prevents uh, the soot from gathering on that part of the tank, which I just think is kind of funny from the evaporation effects. Yeah. So now we live in a world where rockets are reused, and that's just a thing. Yeah. Cool. Like, this is barely reusable. I don't even think they're planning on relaunching the stage that they have now launched twice, because they're planning a big revision to the Falcon 9, which I think is going to launch at the end of this year, or maybe early next year, which is going to be the one that launches that that's rated for 10 flights, mm-hmm. and maybe more. Okay. 10. All right. Yeah. It'll be exciting. Cool. Oh, and then Elon was casually like, oh, also, when we do the Falcon Heavy demo, we might try and reuse the second stage for that, <laughs> which is a significantly harder thing to do and is in less than six months. Good luck. <laughs> yeah. Good luck to Elon and his team. Crazy people. <laughs> I have a question for you about Rails. We got to do the official intro then. Oh. Hi, Sean. Hi, little boy blue. <laughs> Who told you that? Tom. <laughs> Can you explain this to me? I have no clue. I have no clue what this means. Tom so, just told me to do it. When I was uh <laughs> so my stepfather is a truck driver. And so he would be out on his out on the weekends working on his truck. He owned he owned the truck that he drove. And so he'd be out working on the truck and while he was doing that, he would let me sit in the cab and play with the C B radio. And so I would just try and talk on the CB and he was like, well, you need a handle. If you're going to talk on the CB, you got to be like identified by something. You got to have like a nickname. And I knew that I was a little boy. And so I was like, oh, I'll be little boy blue. (laughs) So that's what I would use. That's what I used on the CB. So, yeah, I told the story at lunch the other day where I forget why it came up. Oh, we were talking about like ham radios and I was like, CBs were cool, too. And that was my handle. And then I remember I think I was like nine years old at this point much past the inception of the nickname little boy blue the the, the call sign little boy blue but uh <laughs> i kept using it and i was i'd be like you know in cb lingo you're like anybody out there got their ears on or like whatever and i kept saying let's little boy blue anybody out there with their ears on for i don't know 10 minutes probably because i really wanted to talk to somebody and this guy comes back and he's like this old guy with like a really grizzled voice he's like little boy blue shut the <laughs> up <laughs> <laughs> and then I hung it up and was like, "All right, that's. I guess I'm done with that game now." Uh, yeah, I'm anyway. really disappointed. This isn't your Twitter handle. Now that I know the story, <laughs> it's not something I'm particularly proud of. So <laughs> it just reminds me of. Um, I'm sure there's an actual interesting story, but I just remember hearing that like James Earl Jones would drive around with a CB radio and do the Darth Vader voice on like the highways. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, I mean, CBs are weird. There were definitely people, like, there would be, like, people just reading out of the Bible or, like, you know, I don't know. As one does when driving a truck across the country. Or just having a CB in your basement, right? I don't know. Sure. Yeah, I guess that's true. All right. Can I ask you my Rails question now? Are you done torturing yes. me? I'm done torturing <laughs> you. Sorry. Blame Tom. It's <laughs> like, wait, how did that get back to you? Um, I want to ask you, because I'm, I'm preparing this talk on rest and one of the things i end up i do talk about are state machines and how a lot of times state machines can be better modeled with polymorphism or can be modeled with polymorphism how do you feel about single table inheritance poorly you feel poorly about single table inheritance i feel like that's the popular opinion right is like sti oh god don't use it so polymorphic associations, ha- like from, from just purely a teaching and usage point of view, polymorphic associations have fewer gotchas associated with them, and they kind of feel nicer because it's composition. I'm doing air quotes for, for the listeners. I'm doing air quotes right now. It's composition and not inheritance. Mm-hmm. It kind What's of it is composed rep- of? <laughs> right. It's, it, it, okay. it's in many ways representing the same, I want to say anti-patterns, but potential flaws in the design. But if nothing else, I think that anytime you're using STI, you almost always could represent it as a polymorphic association just as easily. And literally from an API only point of view, not a domain design point of view, but just from an API point of view only, that it will have fewer gotchas if you do it that way. So like the example I'm thinking of, the project I'm on right now, actually, we ended up using single table inheritance. I think I can talk through that a little bit. And that was had okay. not, had not the reason behind that had was not related to the rest idea behind it. But basically, um, it is an application for finding different types of medical facilities or care facilities. And when we started, there was just one type of facility. So we were like, OK, 
you can search on this type of facility. And then it was like, well, we have these other types of facilities we want to search on too. And it was like, okay, so we'll create another object. I don't want to, I don't want to use the same table. These things probably have like early on, basically all they had was a name. And it was like, I recognize that the data is identical right now, but I have reason to believe that it will not it'll be. Change. I, it'll change. And so we got up to like five or six things and the data was almost entirely the same. And the things that weren't the same could be expressed as associations rather than being columns on the, the actual objects themselves. Right. And it started to cause problems having basically these identical objects everywhere because we started to want to treat them identically and reuse parts of code that expected, like were built for one type, reuse them with another type, which meant they had to implement some different methods that we forgot to implement. Like we weren't treating them as an interface, right? Sure. So I was like, I looked at it and I was like, okay, I, I kind of hate to suggest this because I know everybody recoils in this, but like these actually have exactly the same data with slightly different behavior. Like this is inheritance. <laughs> no, it's an interface. It's an interface, sure. Which in Ruby or an association that is the same thing. But I feel like the naming is a lot harder there when you impl like what would you or, set I mean, up what your was the same? You had like a name, address, presumably. So the base facilities table has a name, an email, a website URL, a Medicare provider number parent organization name, a description, and visiting hours. Okay. Visiting hours seems weird to be a single column. Yeah. That's, Is it just a string? It's a text. It's text because okay, like yeah, they yeah. have they have rules. It's not just like so from eight to display five. purposes. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's it can't be structured because the rules are weird. Sure. Oh and a and Boolean flags for at for whether or not it's active and date times that type of things. Sure. And so we just ultimately put that into one base table and use type to well, wait, what's what's the thing that's different so the things that are different are some associations are valid on some types and not on other types and validations a couple validations are different uh no actually the validations aren't because i was like i don't know i'm not super comfortable with the validations being different so the only difference is whether certain associations are valid this doesn't even sound like sti this just sounds like a single table with like sometimes associate like the existence of certain associations implies certain well, so yeah, so the difference is mostly I'm looking at it right here. It's just associations as far as I can tell in the in the few implementation classes I've looked at here. So the reason why having like, oh, why can't they just return empty for like associations that aren't valid is like, I guess it, I guess it really gets into a display concern because I mean, well, define empty like, it, like I, mean, I guess or rather define an invalid association here. OK, so like has many amenities, right? A facility can have have many amenities. Certain types of facilities don't have amenities. It's okay. not it's not a valid thing for them to have amenities. Sure. So so your suggestion would just say has many amenities and there just wouldn't be any associated amenities for those, right? Uh no, cuz there's the state of it is possible for this thing to have amenities yes. it just happens to have Right. None. And that's what we were trying to capture by I think that's what using the subclass captures, right? Where you define that association only in the subclasses where it matters. I guess it's a question of how many of these are there and how complex are the interactions between them because if it's just that I would have a can have amenities flag. Like the one I'm looking at right now has four associations defined on it. The the one implementation has four associations defined on it. So, you know. I guess this, I mean, this actually sounds like probably the most reasonable use of STI I've ever heard <laughs> because you have you, you don't have any columns that are there and are only valid for one of the types. Right. That was the goal. I was very like, if we're going to do this, these are the rules we have to follow. And it has to be like the data has to be identical. Right. And the only alternative I can think of is like a bunch of Boolean flags. Right. Which like, sure, encapsulate those with a name. Right. So that was the reason behind STI for that one. And like, I was very hesitant to suggest it because of, I'm aware that getting out of STI is often very difficult. Well, I'm like, I don't even, uh, tagged enums are pretty cool. Tagged enums. What do you mean by that? Basically the data level, uh, or, or, or tagged unions rather. Sorry. So a union in C is just it's literally STI, but you just have to magically know which variant it can be. And the data is can be completely different and unrelated for each variant. And then a tagged union is a union with a tag, which tells you which variant it is. So okay. a simple uh, example of a tagged union would be an option or maybe, right? There's two variants there. One happens to have data, the other has none. Right. Or either is another tagged yep. union, right? It's more or less STI, but at the language level. And they're great. 
when you combine that with the ability to combine different types of data structures, you get what's usually referred to as algebraic data types, which are also great. And the existence of these more complex types of structured data can help you live in a world without inheritance, which is also, in my opinion, great. <laughs> so then it's, it's funny to like, I haven't, I haven't really thought heavily about STI in a while. Right. It's funny to like have like now reflecting on, I really like enums in Rust, mm-hmm. but STI is evil. Right. I feel like a lot of people don't consider it because they've heard like, ooh, don't use it. Right. And I intentionally wanted to like lean into that a little bit and be like, well, I mean, I've been bit by it in the past, but I've been bit by a lot of things in the past that I, I learned from. And I'm like, OK, this time is going to be different. Right. So, so, <laughs> so the point I was about to get to was, does it even need to use STI, though? Does it actually need to be a different class? Could it not just be literally an enum field and some predicate methods? Like even using active record enum. Oh, and predicate methods that aren't based on like flags. We just look at that enum and say like based on this type. Right. Li- like right. literally which of the known set of values is this flag. Um, which is, I guess, kind of an anti-pattern in an OO language with inheritance. But Right. I would I would look at that and be like, you are like how this is inheritance. You're switching on this to return a type basically also mentioned that like the only reason that you can't have empty amenities for display purposes so how are you actually handling that for display purposes respond to (laughs) (laughs) um so it's exactly the same it's a little more complicated than respond to basically like we know what the user has searched for at that point and we can say like this thing has amenities or doesn't have amenities but it is basically checking the type of the class if you dig down through all the layers that are involved and even if you end up pushing that down to like clever stuff, like it's using polymorphic render, mm-hmm. like that's, that's still a switch statement on the class. We do make a lot of use of polymorphic render. And that's fine, but it's also like it's a switch statement on the class. Right. It's, it's open-ended, which is sometimes nice, sometimes not, but... So, so far, this hasn't been a problem. No, I don't think it would be with the way you're using the it. The one problem that has come up is like at one point, so it, we started by like all the filters... When you're searching on these things, you must tell us the type of thing that you're searching on just for you. The user experience was like, you just have to tell us that's that's the first thing, first step. And so then in the admin interface, though, they wanted like a heterogeneous collection of these things. So it was like, okay, we can do that. No problem. And we created like a search view where you don't have to tell us the type first. And because it was single table, it was like, gosh, this is so much easier. I don't have to query all these different tables or create a view or anything like that. Oh, yeah. Um, so I was like, that works out great. But then the problem was they were like, oh, we want, uh, you know, if it's this type, we want, you know, the one associated whatever to be displayed in the table of results. And you can't preload that because that association doesn't exist everywhere. And ultimately, right. the answer was pretty simple. It was just like, how about we don't do that? <laughs> Well, <laughs> it was like, all right, you could manually done. preload it. Yes, and, but it, but the first thing was like, how about we don't do that? And the answer had sure. to be like, yeah, that's totally acceptable. It was like, great, we don't have to go down this route at all. No, and it's good because as soon as you said that, I'm like, oh, now you sound like you're going down the dark side of STI. <laughs> I guess, yeah, because you could argue, you could argue the fact that the associations differ. Associations are data, and so therefore you could argue the data differs, and that inheritance is not a good fit there sure i mean again like i don't see this as an inheritance thing like just the word inheritance when thinking about this in the abstract does not even remotely come to my mind i have nothing against this living this data living in the same table because even if you from a rails point of view separated it out it would be a separate table which literally has nothing other than a type field and an association right. to this table yeah, uh, with all where all of the data is the same. Like I have nothing against it living in the same table. It's it's just knowing the implications and the gotchas and the weird behavioral things that specifically STI as the method of differentiating them brings. Mm-hmm. That makes me. <laughs> <laughs> the other use case I wanted to get to because that was the first time where I was like I looked back at STI and I was like yeah all right this worked out okay. So the other use case I started thinking about was like. And this is a little bit more abstract, although I do have some experience with playing around with this in a client app. About before uh, we go to the next ago. use case, yes, just because thinking of like where active record enum or literally just a database level enum or just any other form of a tag, mm-hmm. would you say this is to a certain extent almost even similar to like draft in review published on an articles table where only published articles can have comments? 
sort of. And I was getting there with the next. That's the next okay. kind of. Okay. That's the next step. What I was going to go with was order, right? So you have order, and you have an order that's like draft, and then you have an order that's confirmed, and then you have an order that's shipped or something like that, right? Sure. And now, now you're going to make me want to pull up the Shopify code base. Yeah, go ahead, because there's probably a state machine in there, right? Oh, I mean, I'm not. I'm not even going to remotely claim that we should look at the Shopify's code base as an example of how to do things correctly. No, but, because yeah, probably everybody, every app has this. There's probably a state machine in there, and it started out probably really simple, and then it got more and more complicated. Where like with state machines, you can add like conditional validations as you would go between states. You can add methods that are only available on certain states. Which is like you are you're so, talking about a class here. All right, hold on, hold on. Just because I'm only half listening, now I'm looking at state machines on order.rb and Shopify. I want you to <laughs> well, I actually want to hear what you're saying, but just I'm I'm just literally searching for the word state. I see a bunch of before actions on associations with state in the name. We're actually calling a class macro called state machine, which I'm assuming is coming from a gem with the same name. The invocation of those class macros is about a hundred lines. <laughs> I see metaprogramming on the state machines on order. Mm-hmm. That's it. Right. So like what I was thinking was like in those situations, like a lot of what I've seen and from this client project that I worked on a couple of years ago, we had the same thing where it was like there were validations that were different between each step. Like basically, I don't even know if it was if you define I can't quite remember if the state machine gem we were using you probably don't define actually active record validations. You probably just define like whether I think it's like can transition or something like that. And like you inspect the data based on different things, whether or not it can transition to the next state. But those things invariably they end up extracted to a concern because essentially they are classes. Right. <laughs> and so you're trying to be like, this should be in its own little thing. And you're like, yeah, because it should be a class. And the so state machines that we have on, or on our order for reference are the payment status of it and yep. the shipped or the fulfillment status of it. Right. Yep. Take a quick break to tell you about this week's sponsor. SparkPost is the robust cloud API for apps and websites to send and receive email. Built on AWS, it is the world's most reliable and fastest growing cloud email service provider with offerings that range from free, self-service startup accounts to sophisticated enterprise support and services. With developer-friendly, enterprise-grade features, Using SMTP or combined with your language of choice, SparkPost's email REST API makes it easy to embed transactional email and analytics into any app or workflow. SparkPost's high-performance email infrastructure is the only cloud auto-scaling platform with burst rates backed by comprehensive uptime SLAs and is trusted by the world's biggest senders to deliver unmatched uptime and resilience. From its amazing REST API to its industry-leading deliverability to deep analytics, there's never been a better way to build and send email. Try SparkPost and send 100,000 emails a month for free at pages.sparkpost.com slash bikeshed, all one word. Our thanks again to SparkPost for sponsoring today's show. And what got me thinking about this is when we were talking to Sam and we talked about, like, I think you mentioned, like, everybody's favorite action order process. Right. right? <laughs> and like process probably does something with the state machine based on its current state and what the next desirable state is or something like that. And I started wondering, like I looked back at like my single table inheritance and being like, is this easier? Like knowing the constraints that you're dealing, you're in Rails, you're in Ruby and you're dealing with structured data <laughs> and SQL, would it be better to model these things as subclasses? So you have a shipped order and you have a unfulfilled order or something like that. Stepping away from active record for a minute and coming at and, and starting to go more towards rest because the, the order process actually I think is a good one. Mm -hmm. So when you're dealing with state machines, right, it's one of those cases where people kind of point at rest as insufficient because what the heck does put order ID do that you don't <laughs> want you don't want to have to do all that logic on the client side. Um, but I think a good way to reason about these sort of state transitions is to pretend that your database is immutable. Yes. Right. So pretend that you literally can only create, I, mean, I guess you can delete things, but you delete things by adding a deletion for it, whatever, you know, but mm -hmm. pretend update can't exist. Okay. Right. What are the records you would create to represent all the state transitions? And then those are your endpoints. Yeah. From the rest perspective, I totally agree with you. And that's like, I actually have slide this morning as I was on the train, I was like writing the slides for this part of the talk where I show like order process. And then like, because when you see something like order process, your first question is like, well, what does process mean? And right. if I didn't look at the code and I just went and talked to like 10 different people in the business, 
if I said, what does it mean to you to process an order? I would get 10 different answers, right? If I talk to somebody in shipping, they're going to talk about like, oh, it means I do the shipping. If you talk to somebody in fulfillment, it's like, oh, I pick the order off the thing. If you talk to somebody who in finance, it's like, oh, that's when we charge the credit card, <laughs> right? So it doesn't tell you anything. So my point there was like, figure out what it does and then extract a controller for that action, right? So it's not like order process, it's order charge create, right? So like orders slash one slash charge create or something, whatever you're doing. And but then I started I, I was like, and then the refactor is easy, you just copy the code over and maybe you have to change some IDs around or whatever. But then I started wondering, like, how do you take this further? Because like, the next step at that point is like, now you have like, this very nice controller with one action in it, basically. And it's got this, I wouldn't call that nice, I would call that hell. Well, I would call it hell because likely the body of that one action is very procedural right. and and huge and untested or not sufficiently yes, tested yes. because it can't be unit tested very easily in a controller. And so I started talking about like extracting out objects and I was like, well, for things like order where you have a state machine backing it, would single table inheritance be a better, like now that you've done the, the hard part of like giving a specific name to the controller and the action, does it make sense to then back out of your state machine and into something like single table inheritance or probably or not none of the above right yes probably not it probably makes more sense to just extract a regular ruby object that handles recording. whatever the hell logic you need right. and it doesn't have to be a state machine i mean right. you'll 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 presumably have a representation of whatever state it's in assuming that you have a finite number of states that can be feasibly represented in known transitional periods you know you know what i mean like like there's also just a lot of things i see represented as state machines are cases where the states are kind of nebulous and hard to pin down and you don't necessarily know which state something is in right and lots of external things can change that then impact the state that the thing is in yeah or like just as a as a kind of shitty but contained example like uh let's say you have a chargeback on an order right um i guess actually chargeback probably does just warrant its own state because there by definition has to have been a payment made Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess actually that's an even shittier example than I thought it was. I knew it was a <laughs> shitty example going into it, but I thought it kind of sort of. But if, if nothing else, like, I guess actually now that I'm just looking at this order class and child, it makes sense because we have fulfillment and payment separated into two separate state machines, whereas I would usually in most applications see those as a single state machine mm -hmm. where like it's paid and then shipped to a separate state. But right. then there are so many states that are independent of whether or not it's been. Right. But so like, I guess what I'm coming to is I'd rather see those things captured in Sean's favorite word, service objects, right? Sure. So like yeah. going from, to get from a regular- right. the transitions definitely have right. no business living there. Right. And even the logic about whether or not it's okay for something to transit to, like if given an order, so like I would have like an, maybe an order shipment, right? Class. Right. You would say like order shipment dot process and you'd pass it an order or something. Right. Dot call, whatever your favorite command object method name is. Maybe give it a name that's meaningful for what it does and, and name your <laughs> class what it is. But Well, I mean, if you name the class what it is, like let's take a little sidestep here. If it's order shipment, right? It's going to create an order. Like would you call it create or would you just like, what would you call that method? guess it depends on what ship it does order Sh order shipment dot ship order passing in what an if, order what if, what if you just made it a top level function if there's no reason for it to be on an object why don't we ever so 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 a global, a global function called ship order how is that any global method, how is that sorry. any better than global constant name dot call um it just is <laughs> why though <laughs> if it is a function if you're gonna call the thing dot call Right. Essentially, I'm saying it's a function. Yep. And, and in particular, if it's dot new, bunch of arguments, dot call with no arguments, that is a function. Right. Why, why not just have it be a top level function? It's just not the way we do things, Sean. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's not the way we do things in Ruby, and it's weird. <laughs> I guess I had never stopped to think about that. Like, how is it better that I'm creating a top level constant that is a class name? Right. Then, which can just as easily conflict. Um, yeah. Overwriting a constant, wouldn't I get a warning? No. I thought you did. You would, if you have warnings turned on. Right. Well, actually, no, no you wouldn't. I can reopen no, a you're class. you're not overriding the constant, you're reopening the constant. Right. And I, right. Like so, if I you were know. doing If you were doing constant equals object.new with the method defined, and then def self.call or something, then that would warn, but... 
presumably okay. just doing class whatever anyway sorry <laughs> that's my that's my like hey functions are cool side rant all right so the way i usually build those objects is i give the class a name that you would like to see me give to a function instead sure i give the class a name i define whatever the method name is going to be and the, the thing is like i do like to give them method names that make sense but after you build a number of these, people tend to just say, like, why don't we just call all of these call or process? Right. Or, well, because now, you, now you're, they're functions and you want to pass them around and, and work with them like higher order functions. So, yeah. Sure. So I tend to define a class method called call, which instantiates and then calls the instance method called call just right. to make the calling a little prettier. Sure. Just make <laughs> it look like a function invocation. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm with you. <laughs> so anyway, that stuff that lives in the state machine, trying to get as much of that to live inside one of those objects, and then making all transitions, what used to be like state machine transitions, making all of those transitions use that object, right? So you don't just say right. like order dot state equals shipped, right? You have to go through this create shipment service object. Right. I mean, it's a separate object per transition. Yes, exactly. And then each thing becomes a little more independent. I mean, it's certainly more testable than it is in a controller, right? right. If you extract an object there and probably more testable than it would be in a model. It's a hard thing. I would argue that there's never going to be a thing that, like that has more than three or four states, particularly if if the number of valid transitions is not just the number of states factorial uh, or squared. <laughs> Factorial would be basically every transition possible, right? Right, right. That's what I mean. If, if it's not possible to transition from every state to every other state, mm -hmm. my point being, if there are invalid transitions, those are the ones where I think basically nobody has proper test coverage. Hmm. Why is Nobody's that? Nobody's actually testing. Like, what if I have a record that's in this state and I somehow, due to a bug in the UI or somebody poking around or just mm -hmm. for whatever reason, you know, try to do this invalid transition? What happens and how do we recover from it? And is it actually disallowed? So do you think it's easier to have coverage on that if you extract these objects that we're talking about? No, I think you're just as likely to forget to test it. I think it is for the invalid cases. I think you are going to forget to write those tests no matter which method you use. See, I don't I don't know if that's true because I think I, my inclination would be like when I'm writing one of these objects and it's about to do some sort of process to an object, my first inclination would be to check whether or not it's possible to do that right like given like the state of this order is it valid for me to try and ship right? right and if i had that conditional in there that i wrote i would test it whereas if i was relying on a dsl of a state machine that i know like i just know i didn't write a transition from oh sure right from foo to bar i wouldn't necessarily test that which is fine until like your state machine starts getting more complicated and somebody adds it and you didn't notice it. And Well, it's also like you don't you don't want to test that the state machine gem does what the state machine gem does. You do want to test all of your interaction with the state machine gem, which presumably actually just means testing literally everything it does because the definition of your transitions is your interaction with it. <laughs> right. On the subject of just a, a sidebar here, just because I've got order.rb open here, reasons I dislike metaprogramming. <laughs> Number one. So so go ahead and tell me off the top of your head, what do each of these methods do? Embed meta fields. Pass the hash where the key is Shopify pause and the and the value is symbol pause attributes. Shopify P A U S E? P O S point of sale, presumably. Oh. <laughs> but like what does embed meta fields do? Um What's a meta field? What does it mean to embed it? Why are we embedding it? It's a field about the Why order and embedding means it gets set as a JSON object on the field or something on the sure. object. Is that Your what it does? as good as mine. <laughs> sortable by created that, updated that, processed that. Isn't everything sortable? Because like it's SQL. Sequenced column. I guess actually that's literally it's a sequence that gets incremented. That actually makes more sense. Okay. But that's metaprogramming, right? Sure. And should be in the database. Yeah, I was going to say, how does that... <laughs> well, we're using MySQL, so it's a lot harder to do in the database than it would be if we were using Postgres. That scares me, though. The seek, like... Yeah. How does it's that... It's scope. Don't worry. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Money column, I guess that one makes sense and just because predates attributes API. Mm -hmm. Has token, token. Okay. Has attached What's file. A token? Has attached file, file. Right. Well, that actually, to me, has a lot more meaning than has token. Right. I think you know, kind of know what a file is. I assume token means a lot more than token means. 
Because token is basically meaningless. It is an arbitrary string, or not even an arbitrary string. It's an arbitrary sequence of bytes. And what that means, or how it's generated, or whether or not has token implies that the token is somehow generated automatically. A token is a thing serving as a visible or tangible representation of a fact, quality, or feeling. Or it is a voucher that can be exchanged for goods or services. Or it's an individual occurrence of a symbol or string in particular. Exactly. And so it has one of those, which I, I, I did assume. Here's actually the thing that really irks me about has token token. Because presumably token is a column. Yep. So yes, I, I, I know that the thing that has a column called token has a token. Thank you for restating that for me. Mm -hmm. This literally give, gives me no information that was not already present. Right. And presumably that does something. Now you have to figure out what where has token is defined and go chase that down to figure out what it uh, does. What it does. Yeah. Right. But just because then then there's the hundred lines of state machine stuff. Mm -hmm. And the reason just your comment got me thinking about that is like, and you know what? I have no clue what any of this DSL means. It's a little bit less opaque than these other DSL invocations, presumably just because there's a hundred lines of it. Mm -hmm. But like, yeah, I don't know what any of this means. And boy, it would be a lot clearer if there was just some code I could go read. Yeah. And the the difficulty in finding the definition of that code is like a uniquely Ruby kind of problem. Oh, yeah. Uh, no, I, just, <laughs> I, I just tried to grep for the definition and it didn't bring up anything. So it comes from a gem. I'm going to guess it's coming from our own gem and not like a standard state machine gem. Uh, and I'm not going to try and search that down. The, the the first Rails project I worked on, I turned it over to, when I left the company, I turned it over to this developer who was like getting into Rails and was a Java programmer. And I was walking him through the code base and he was like looking at all these, what we call macros, but are just class methods, right, in, in the model. And I had used some gems that help you do things. Like I remember one of them being like, um, uh, I can't remember what the methods names were, but they were like these weird methods. And he was like, okay, I understand that like has one and has many, like these are Rails things. I can understand that. What is this one? And I'd be like, oh, that comes from such and such gem. He'd be like, all right, okay. He'd be like, what's this one over here? He'd be like, oh, that comes from this other gem. And he's like, well, how do you know that? You're not like requiring those gems. And I was like, oh, but I am. Just no. <laughs> yeah, you, I am. You just know. I was like, I am requiring it. Like Bundler's handling that for me. And he's like, <laughs> in every file. And I was like, oh, that's no, we don't, we don't have file level require. No, no. Right. We don't, we don't have scoped import. <laughs> We actually do with refinements, but nobody uses refinements. Yeah, we've discussed that in a past show before about how. Um, no, but it's funny that you just mentioned like, cause we, so order.rb has accelerated belongs to shop. I don't really know what it means for a belongs to to be accelerated <laughs> or why only some of them are accelerated, but not others. I want a slow belongs to. That's what I want. The one that, the one that I do really like, we have attribute shop ID, shop ID type dot new. There you go. And of course, you have to know what, you have to know what attribute is. Mm -hmm. but they used shop id type not dot new and not the register a global mm -hmm. symbol somewhere that just makes me really happy because i can totally go grep for shop id type and figure out what is going on here if you get blame that you wrote it six months ago i guarantee you. no i no i didn't <laughs> but i do remember a person coming and asking me about if this was a reasonable way to solve a problem they were trying to solve mm-hmm I did just try and get blame it though, and it took. <laughs> history is so long; it took uh, fugitive like fifteen seconds to pull it up. <laughs> All right. So to recap, STI in the first case that I talked about seems like sure, reasonable approach. I mean, the idea of having that all live on the same table with a column that acts as a tag, mm -hmm. I think makes sense. <laughs> STI is a way to do that. How, yeah, STI at that point is an implementation detail, right? It's how I get Ruby to recognize that tag. Sure, yes. And if I wanted to do it differently at some other point, I could, as long as I don't have code all over the place that's like switching on class name. I mean, it's switching on respond to, which is basically the same thing. Yes. <laughs> um, I don't know if we have actually, yeah, it probably does come down to respond to. And then the second, second case of state machine that like STI is probably not a good substitute for a state machine, but extracting objects that are dedicated to those transitions are so would you say i think you were also hinting around like maybe not even tracking an explicit state and just having like the availability of data on an object tell you what its state is right, right. like not all you don't always have explicit states right something can be both shipped and something else and like in a lot of state machines i see 
that's assumed to be a progression. Like, I think we were right. talking about that. So that's assumed to be a progression where if you get to X, you must have already gotten to Y. And once you're at X, you can never undo Y. But in, in reality, that may not be the case. Here's, here's some better examples. We have, we have states partially refund, which also partially refund and not partially refunded. Right. Well, maybe it hasn't been refunded yet. It's just flagged for partial refund. Right. Partially refund, partially pay. We have void. Mm-hmm. These are all the wrong tense. Event penned. Penned? Oh, I get it. These aren't. Those are the verbs and then right. the states of the nouns. Right. I see. Where does it define the nouns? I. Those are just, they're just implicit, I guess, in the transitions that are there. I guess. I'm not sure. Yeah. I think my approach to that would be like, would you just put like voidable? as a method, right? And well, it's then, also, but like partially refunded and partially paid. Isn't right. something that's partially refunded by definition also partially paid? Is it partly cloudy or partly sunny? Who knows? <laughs> I don't know. But yeah, no. So I, I like sometimes it makes sense to have explicit states. Published, draft. Right. Those are, those are some very explicit states. Yes. Pending, I would argue is a less explicit state and is more just whether or not published uh, like and again, but then you don't necessarily have to have the explicit state machine, right? Because you can have a published on or publish at whatever your preferred naming scheme is mm-hmm. date time column. Anything is a draft. If that column is nil, it is pending. If that column has a date that is in the future and it's published, if it has a date and that's in the past. Yeah. Friend of the show, Caleb Thompson would like us to probably, if we're talking about adding Boolean columns to capture these ah, things. Yes. Times Boolean. Time for a Boolean is his gem, but is actually, I don't know that I use the gem a lot, but I do like the sentiment behind the gem, which is like anytime you have a Boolean, you may as well use a timestamp because you yep. may want to know like when was it activated at yep. and having the actual timestamp can do both, right? No, I'm, I'm on board with that. I yeah. mean, keeping in mind that if it's an actually super performance critical thing that you're filtering on, right? there's some implications there, but that's almost never actually the case. Well, if, if you were filtering on it in SQL, you could create an index that's just like where null, where not null, right? True. And that would be just as fast as a Boolean, I would imagine. Uh, assuming that the data set that you're filtering on is small enough that the index actually gets used because that requires the, it to be small enough to fit in memory, which means not the entire table. Hmm. Okay. Because it will fall back to a sequential scan for greater than about 15,000 rows for most tables. Oh, look at that. I learned something today. <laughs> All right. No, it's a great gem, though, and, and people should use it a lot. Oh, time for a Boolean. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And state machines. Everybody has a state machine. We just talked about how state machines are terrible, but they're everywhere. But try not to use them. <laughs> As an aside, though, because I, I was just thinking about this. I threw out my, like, you could just have a bunch of Boolean columns. Mm-hmm. And you're mentioning that you're switching on respond to. And probably the correct OO way to not switch on respond to there would be to add a method like has, right. has uh, amenities, which returns right. a Boolean. Right. And probably the end result of the cleanest way to do it is actually identical to if you just had a bunch of Boolean columns. Right. The encapsulation of like a, a known enumeration being like presumably not all values or all combinations of values for each of those Boolean columns is valid. But yeah, because like if I didn't want to use respond to, then I would just use a method. I would send a message instead. Right. Not respond to send a different message than respond to of has amenities. Right. Um, or amenityable, I guess not has amenities because just because it doesn't have amenities doesn't mean that it can't can have, have amenities. Amenityable. Amenityable. I think Amenable. it was Gabe that popularized around here, uh, at least around here. He probably didn't come up with it, but like, how do you pronounce the query method in Ruby? And I always just raise my voice at the end, like admin, like that. Um, I like. Um the uh Avdi Grimm version of putting a at the end that's what that's what gabe was talking about like admin yeah. a and i was like it was somebody who had gone through metas and i was doing pairing with them and they were like we need an admin a method and i was like admin underscore a <laughs> I was like, what are you like the letter a i was like i don't understand and he kept saying it and i was like what are you talking about and it's like just type it please and then you type that's admin just, with that's a question just like mark. the natural pronunciation up here <laughs> I, I either use the voice inflection thing I talked about before or I say query and I hope that that gets understood but there's an actual gem called Canada yes. you can add to your gem file and yes. will actually alias any method that ends with a question mark to be underscore a question mark we've had the maintainer of Canada on the show we have that's true yeah well 
I don't know if he still maintains it. Or at least the original maintainer. Yes, the original creator. It also, uh, I think, I'm doing this from memory, but I think it prefaces every exception message with sorry. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. I think it's like a combination of three or four different apologies, but yes. <laughs> All right. I think it's time for us to wrap up now. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Or do you have anything more to say? No, I'm good. I'm. Oh, oh. You want to talk about the stupid bassinet? Oh yeah, let's do this. Like three weeks. Let's do this. Let's re. I, we've never. So we've had this conversation, but we've never mentioned it on the show. Right. Because every time we finish recording, I'm like, oh, I wanted to talk about the crazy expensive bassinet. Right. We're done talking about programming now. Right. If, if, if you're you, if you if you're looking for more programming, you, you can you can turn off your podcast now. Should we do the thing where we do the end of the podcast and then we do it afterwards? Sure. You know what? Okay. Yeah. If you want to hear us talk about bassinets and border control, stay tuned for a minute. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 107. As always, ratings and reviews on iTunes are much appreciated. If you have feedback about this episode or any others, you can tweet us at underscore bike shed, email us at host at bikeshed.fm, or leave a comment on the website. Thanks for listening to Bike Shed, and we'll see you next time. Bassinets. All right, so Tess was talking to Leia, Yehuda's wife. Uh, we had been sleeping in shifts. Mm-hmm. Baby's not sleeping through the night. Baby's not sleeping through the night. Baby's not even, like, coming close. Right. Two hours tops. Yep. And, like, the sleeping and shifts in theory worked, but in practice, like, with my difficulty going up and down stairs, it meant that I slept more than my wife did, and my wife just was up all night Mm -hmm. and slept on the couch, which sucked (laughs) on all fronts. Anyway, so we hear that Yehuda's kid was sleeping eight to nine hours every night as a two-month-old. Don't you just hate those people? <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so they tell us they got this crazy fancy bassinet called the Snoo, mm-hmm. uh, which is from this company called Happiest Baby. Yeah, you sent this to me, and I watched yeah. the video, and I said, I don't care how much that costs. I absolutely would have bought one if I were in those shoes, if I were back in that time of my life. I'll tell you what, she's not sleeping eight hours. It does say if you start on this thing when your baby's older than four weeks, it can take a week or two for them to get fully acclimated. But she is sleeping consistently like five to six hours. And it's right. on and up. Like she used to be waking up at one. Last night she woke up at three. Right. The thing about those things, though, is like you'll never know. You'll never know no. if she just got more mature in some area and is able to do that, right? <laughs> like, I'll tell you what, though. There are there are two things that, that are specifically... Well, there's one thing in particular that's just obviously it is doing. Mm-hmm. Because the, so the main selling points of it are it has a special swaddle that hooks into the side of it. So, like, literally your baby cannot roll over. It is mm-hmm. physically impossible. So the side effect of that is that you can swaddle your baby for much longer because normally you have to stop swaddling them once they start being able to roll over because they could die. Hmm. I never let that stop me. <laughs> well, that's why the, the, the three-month sleep regression is a thing, apparently. Yeah. It's because you, you have to stop swaddling your baby. You're supposed mm-hmm. to have to stop swaddling your baby. Mm-hmm. But this one, you can keep swaddling them until they don't fit in the swaddle anymore. Yeah. And then the other thing is, uh, so it, like, plays white noise and kind of has a soothing rocking motion that supposedly emulates the womb and then when they start getting fussy it just automatically increases the noise level and then starts rocking them more intensely <laughs> and no, we're using rocking is, not shaking we're not shaking we're rocking my wife <laughs> described she went in there once and it was on the it, it stops itself automatically after three minutes because it, it, it if it can't calm them down for three minutes they actually need something yep. and my wife described towards the end of three minutes when she went in there. She described what I was doing as, baby, go to sleep. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> uh, but no, it actually has been, like, it definitely has just yeah. she's woken up, cried, and then a minute and a half later been back asleep. Awesome. And then actually continued sleeping for an hour or two longer. Yeah. Uh, and then specifically the knowing that, like, she just cannot do anything in that swaddle is nice. Yeah. But uh, this company did not ship to Canada. Okay. This is a, this is a common refrain on our podcast. Yes. <laughs> so it turns out there are companies that just literally have an office on the border. And by on the border, I mean, it, it, like, we missed the turn. Because <laughs> we figured, oh, it's that street up there. No, it's on the border. And all <laughs> they do is just accept packages for people in Canada. They charge you five bucks. They charge $2 less than the bridge itself for a pass to get across the bridge. Because you have to pay to get across the bridge. Because it's a bridge at the border and it's in New York. 
mm-hmm. and so therefore tolls. Yep. And um, the U.S. border guard, they're very chill in Augustenburg because Augustenburg is just a little Amish town in the middle of nowhere in like semi-upstate New York. And was in, found it intriguing that we still have Colorado plates, but that was about it. Mm-hmm. Then on the way back, you know, not wanting to be, well, not like we could have smuggled across the border if we wanted to, but like I just was straight up with the border guard. I'm like, yeah, we came across the border to pick up a package. Mm-hmm. What was the package? It's a bassinet. How much is it worth? About $1,000 because they're going to want to see the receipt because mm-hmm. we have to pay duty on it because uh, you, you can only do duty free if you've been across the border for more than 48 hours. All right. Unless it's food, apparently. All right. Which I didn't think you were allowed to bring across the border ever, but you can apparently go to America from Canada. You can go to America for grocery shopping and you don't have to pay duty. Anyway, so the we bring him up. The guy gives us a receipt. We have to pull in, go into the office to pay our duty. So the guy like does not buy our story for a second and like is assuming that we're smuggling drugs across the border, is making sure that we've paid import taxes on our car, goes out, searches the car, pulls out my cigar ashtray, tests it for drugs, along with a business card holder that I had, which I'm assuming he thought I was storing joints in or something. Mm-hmm. Pot isn't legal in New York, is it? Mm, I don't think so. Maybe medical, but. Okay, yeah. Anyway, it's testing, yeah, tests all of our shit for drugs and then gets really pissed off because I had a cigar holder in my glove compartment, which had one cigar, which I had completely forgotten about and was not even smokable because it had been in my car for like six months. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, don't know, I, I just found it interesting because, like, I mean, I'm assuming it's just because we were young and like, who the hell buys a $1,000 bassinet and who the hell goes to New York to pick up a $1,000 bassinet? It'd be a lot of trouble to buy a $1,000 bassinet as your cover for something, though. Right. <laughs> Well, unless we're like actual drug lords mm-hmm. and we're smuggling across hundreds of thousands of dollars. Of right. And it's all rolled up inside the bassinet. <laughs> right. Which, ironically, the one thing he didn't search was the bassinet box. <laughs> well, I'm glad the bassinet is working out. Yeah, it seems to be working all right. I mean, yeah, the other thing we ever think is it's expensive, but like they have a 30-day money-back guarantee. Mm-hmm. And so my, my next thought was like, like, because this is the sort of thing where if it doesn't actually get your baby sleeping through the night, you would return it. Yeah. So it yeah. must work for a, enough people that they're making money. Right. Do you think in a couple of years they'll come out with like uh, a snoo toddler bed? Because like babies are just going to be like, I can't sleep unless somebody's shaking me. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and here's your snoo twin bed. And then, like, a, a little mattress topper you can take with you to, to college. <laughs> I mean, with newborns, it's all about replicating the womb, right? <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I don't know. That was just my story. I found it interesting. And I also just spent a lot of money on a bassinet, so I wanted to talk about it. Yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, I think I support you in your throwing money at baby problems in hopes that they will be fixed. And in this case, it seems like it uh, actually worked. Yeah. No, I mean, we've been, we've been getting more sleep, which is good. We have three bassinets now. <laughs> <laughs> and if you ever have another baby, you'll get to reuse it. Yes. And if you don't, you can sell it. 